great to see you this morning. Thank you for the flexibility. I know this is a bit of an unusual weekend being the marathon. We've adjusted our service times. I do want to say uh, congratulations to all those. uh, I know many of you did not run this morning or you wouldn't be here, but we have some that are watching online. It is no small feat to complete either a full or, or a half marathon. Can we just say congratulations to those? Yeah. I also want to say thank you. Uh, many of us were here about 5.30, quarter to 6 this morning, cheering the runners on as they uh, came by the church and um, Urban Impact. I want to thank them. The band was out there um, playing this morning and cheering them on. It's just it's an amazing thing to see. So to our staff and so many volunteers that decided to come early and help us, I just want to say thank you for doing that. The year 1984 was a great year for the NBA draft. Many actually even consider it the best draft in NBA history. The very first pick in 1984 draft was a young basketball player by the name of Hakeem Olajuwon. And he was one of the most dominant big men in the game's history. He helped the Houston Rockets win back-to-back championships in 1994 and 1995. Many of you will know the third pick of that draft. He was a man by the name of Michael Jordan, and I don't need to go into all of his statistics today. The fifth pick was Charles Barkley. Uh, voted one of the top 50 players in the NBA. And then the 16th pick in 1984 was a guard by the name of John Stockton, to this day leads the NBA in assists. However, the year 1945 was also a remarkable year. And just as 1984 was a great year for rookie hoop stars, 1945 was absolutely an unbelievable year for rookie evangelist. Let me explain what I mean. In 1945, there was a 27-year-old named Billy Graham who was storming out of nowhere, filling auditoriums and speaking to thousands upon thousands of people a night. You see, Billy Graham was hired as the first evangelist for an organization called Youth for Christ. And his reputation as a uniquely and talented, gifted preacher swarmed across America. And of course, the rest is history. There's probably not a person in this room who does not know the name Billy Graham. And while you've heard of Billy Graham, have you ever heard of the name Chuck Templeton or Braun Clifford? You see, Billy Graham wasn't the only young preacher packing out auditoriums in the year 1945. Chuck Templeton and Braun Clifford were accomplishing the same three, the same thing. And all three of these guys were in their mid-20s. Chuck Templeton and Billy Graham were actually friends. They both worked for Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers. Yet in the early years, and in 1945, most people would have put their money on Chuck Templeton to make a greater impact for Jesus in the world. One seminary president, after hearing Chuck Templeton preach to an audience of thousands, called him the most gifted and talented young man in America today for preaching. In 1946, 
the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on people who were best used of God in that organization's first five-year existence. The article highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was never even mentioned. Templeton, many felt, that he would be the next Michael Jordan of evangelism. Now let me talk about Bron Clifford. Bron Clifford was another gifted 25-year-old preacher. And in 1945, many believed that he would be the most gifted and powerful preacher that the church would ever see in years. In that same year, he preached to a packed auditorium filled with thousands of people in Miami, Florida. Outside that auditorium, lines were 10 to 12 people deep trying to get in. Later that same year, Bron Clifford preached at Baylor University. The seminary of the school, the, the president of the school canceled all of the classes so that Braun would have plenty of time to preach. He preached for two hours and 15 minutes, holding the college students, holding their attention while they sat on the edge of their seats. Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton, and Braun Clifford. 1945, all three came out of the starting blocks like rockets. Yet today... You probably only know of Billy Graham. You never heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford before today. Why? Let me tell you. Five years into his ministry, in 1950, Chuck Templeton left the ministry to pursue a career as a radio and television commentator. He decided that he no longer believed in Jesus, and he left the faith. By 1950, only five years into ministry, this once future Michael Jordan, if you will, he wasn't even in the game. And he no longer believed in Jesus. Bron Clifford, nine years after a strong start, by 1954, Clifford had lost his family, he had lost his ministry, and he eventually lost his health and his life. You see, alcohol and financial irresponsibility had done him in. He left his wife and their two sons. Both his children had Down syndrome. And at just 35 years old, this once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel on the edge of Amarillo, Texas. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. 1945. Three young men with extraordinary gifts were preaching the gospel to thousands of people across this nation, set to make an amazing difference for the kingdom of God. But within 10 years, only one of them was on track for Jesus. Why am I telling you this story today? It's because of this. As followers of Jesus, we must recognize and remember this is what matters. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. You see, how a life, how a ministry, how a marriage, even a relationship, how all of those things end are absolutely crucial to everything that goes before it. Think of Judas for just a moment. Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Remember, this was a man who followed Jesus initially. He walked with him. He talked with him. He broke bread with him. He was there for the miracles. Remember in the Gospels when Jesus sends the disciples out two by two, healing people and casting out demons? Judas was a part of that. Yet when we hear the name Judas today, 
We don't think of how Judas started. All we remember is how he betrayed Jesus at the end. Judas did not finish strong. In comparison, think of Saul. Saul was someone who didn't start out very strong. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in, in the day of uh, the first century. And he persecuted Christians. He went after and arrested men and women who were following Jesus. He was there. He approved and he watched the stoning of Stephen. And yet we now call him the Apostle Paul. A man who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You see, Paul finished strong. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul towards the end of his life, right before he himself would be martyred, he wrote these words to his young student named Timothy, and he said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The Apostle Paul compares the journey of our faith he compares it to a race. And if you follow Jesus long enough, if you're here today and you love Jesus and you're a Christian, understand and remember that the faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Our journey of faith is a marathon. And God is looking for finishers. He's not looking for fast starters. He's looking for finishers. Now, for some of you today, and maybe even watching online, this is hard for you to hear. It's hard for you to hear because deep down within your heart, you think that you've already disqualified yourself from the race. You think that you're already disqualified and there's no way that you could possibly finish strong. Maybe it's because you had an affair. Maybe it's because you've left your spouse for someone else. Maybe you've neglected your kids and in this moment right now, they want nothing to do with you. Maybe it's because you have an addiction that you've never been able to overcome. Maybe it's because you look at other people and see all that they're accomplishing and for the kingdom or in their life and you compare yourself and you think you can't and you won't ever be able to measure up to what they have done. Maybe you simply decided to follow Jesus late in your life and you feel like you've wasted too many years. Maybe you've just messed up your life so badly so you think that you have no shot at finishing strong. Well, before you convince yourself of that, I want to highlight someone in the Bible that we don't talk about very often. My dad was a pastor and I grew up going to Sunday school. Many of you did the same. Probably a lot of you grew up going to Sunday school here at ACAC, ACAC. And there was a lot of people that I learned about in Sunday school. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Of course, that was a great Sunday school story. The little boy who gave Jesus his loaves and fish, Jonah, Peter, Daniel in the lion's den. But there was someone that I never learned about in Sunday school. Someone who didn't start very fast, in fact, if anybody was disqualified from the race of faith, this person was. But the Bible tells us that they finish strong. And this person's name is Manasseh. Now, let's look. Manasseh's story is found in 2 Kings and also 2 Chronicles. Let me introduce you to this young man. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. Now let's stop there before we just read over this and gloss over one important fact. He was 12 years old when he became king. Can you imagine having a president 
of the United States that is 12 years old. No jokes, okay? No comments. I know some of you, you go, well, it may not be as bad. If we have a 12 years old, and he's king. And he reigned for 55 years. But here's the thing about this king. You could go throughout all the Old Testament. This guy was a bad dude. We don't have time to go through all of the, of the scripture, but he arguably could have been the worst king in Israel's history. The Bible tells us in verse 2 that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. Now, I put into bullet form, bullet point form, the bad things, the detestable things, the evil things that this king of Israel did. Now, remember, he was a king over God's people. He's 12 years old, and throughout 55 years, these are the bad things that the Bible tells us he did. First of all, he rebuilt shrines his dad Hezekiah destroyed. Now, if you don't know who Hezekiah is, Hezekiah was a godly man, was a godly king. I mean, Manasseh grew up in a Christian home. He might have been homeschooled or went to a Christian school and then went off to Christian college. I mean, this guy knew better. But the Bible tells us that everything his dad did that was good, he tore down. He rebuilt the shrines that his dad, the, the, all the shrines to the other gods, he rebuilds them. But not only that, he built new altars for new gods. He created new gods. Looked at gods in other nations and said, we're going to build altars and temples and shrines for them. Not only that. He didn't just do it out in the countryside and in the city streets. He went into the most holy place of all of the people of Israel. It'd be like going into the church, tearing everything down and putting altars and idols to lowercase g, gods. And he did that in the temple of the Lord. And then he even sacrificed his own son. He killed his own son to one of these other gods. He's not done doing evil. The Bible tells us that he practiced sorcery and he consulted psychics. The Bible says that he did more evil than Israel's enemies. Think about that. Israel was God's people and they had a lot of enemies. And God tells us in his word that Manasseh was so bad as a king, he was worse than the surrounding enemies. He led God's people into sin. So it wasn't enough that he himself sinned. It wasn't enough that he himself did all these things throughout the country of Israel. He led God's people to also sin. And in doing so, he murdered innocent people. And history tells us that he even murdered the prophet Isaiah. History says that Isaiah was put in a hollow log and sawed in half. Isaiah was a prophet to God's people. Manasseh was a bad guy he was the worst of the worst now second kings ends here but second chronicles picks up the end of manasseh's life and the bible tells us in chapter 33 of second chronicles it says the lord spoke to manasseh and his people but they ignored all of his warnings so the lord sent the commanders of the syrian armies this was israel's enemies he sent the commanders of the Syrian army and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a note, they put a ring through his nose, they bound him in chains, bronze chains, and they led him away to Babylon. Now you would think that the story would end there and everybody would go, yes, 
finally, justice happens. The movie ends and everybody celebrates because this bad guy finally gets what he deserves, right? No. It's not what how the story ends. That's not what happens. This verse says that while in deep distress, remember the enemy comes, they put this ring in Manasseh's nose, they haul him off, they throw him in prison, and while he's in prison in deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God, and he sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. Now keep it there for a minute. I'm just being real with you and pretty human. This bothers me. Of course he cries out to God. He has nowhere else to go. He got what he deserved. He's in prison. Not only did he sin himself, he led others to sin. He killed innocent people. He killed his own son. And you're telling me that he cries out to God in jail? And God, look at this next verse. Look how God responds. When he prayed, the Lord listened to him. And he was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then here it says, Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. That chapter goes on to tell us that he, made, he not only was made right with God, he refortified Jerusalem. He removed all of the idols in the temple. He restored the temple of the Lord. He made peace. And he made thanksgiving offerings. He made things right with the people that he hurt the best of his ability. And he encouraged and tried to lead Israel back to the ways of the Lord. Despite all of his mistakes, believe it or not, Manasseh finished strong. Remember, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. And if it's not how you start, it's how you finish that matters. Then how do we finish strong? Well, we've mentioned it, and you know that it's the Pittsburgh Marathon weekend. For those that ran today, they know it's a long race. It's 26.2 miles to be exact, and every one of them wanted to finish strong. How many of you know when everybody left the starting line, there was hope, there was energy, there was excitement. You could see it right here. It's a mile five, so it's still early in the race. And you could see the hope and the energy and the excitement. The weather's good. I'm going to nail this race today. But how many of you know about a mile 11, mile 12, you start cramping up, you start sweating, you're getting tired, you can't breathe, your mouth is all pasty, and your mind is going, why on earth did I do this? And I want to quit right now. I didn't even run the race, and I watched them, and I felt that way. <laughs> One of the guys who ran the race this morning, he's a pastor in our denomination up in up in Butler, and uh, we were talking last night. He stayed the night at our house because we're here in the city, and it was quicker for him. He said that mile 12 is where things get really hard. It's known as the hill, and it's right in Oakland. And how many understand that in the journey of life, in the faith journey, all of us hit mile 12 at some point? At some point, you come to that point called the hill in your faith, or in your life, or in your marriage, or in your relationship with your kids, or in your job, or whatever, your health, whatever it may be, and you feel tired, and you spiritually get cramped up, and your mind starts going, is it worth it? Should I just get out of the race? Should I just quit? 
Well, marathon runners know, and they experienced it today, that if there's one thing that is needed to finish the race, it is going to be endurance. It is going to be perseverance. And the same is true for us as we follow Jesus. The faith journey is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So we can expect there to be mile 11s, mile 12s. And in those moments, we need to demonstrate endurance and perseverance. The author of Hebrews says that very much in a really a, a marathon or a running type of illustration. He says, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses. Imagine those of you that were here this morning as we were cheering on those runners. That's what the author is giving us a picture of. Surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. The writer says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Especially the sin that really easily trips us up. And then he says what? Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Our faith journey, the marathon of faith, will require us to run with endurance. And he says, how do you do that? How do you run with endurance? And he tells us. Well, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So if you're here today and you've hit the hill, the writer of Hebrews, and I believe Jesus would say to you today, keep your eyes on me. Press on. Just put one foot in front of the other. If you have fallen, get up and keep going. It's not how you start. It's how you finish that matters. As we head towards the close, I want to encourage you three ways in which I believe as Christ followers, we can, it'll help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Three things, we need to be consistent, we need to run with the group, and we need to fill our life with his spirit. What do I mean by saying be consistent? How many of you know that those who ran, the thousands of people that ran today, um, I doubt any of them just signed up last week and showed up to run. It's a recipe for disaster. Somebody, one of the staff was saying, man, can you imagine the time and the energy put into training for this moment? They did. There's training. There's a consistency. The same is true in our life of faith. The Apostle Paul, he said, physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. Well, how do you train for godliness? That means in the mornings, you get up and we train by reading his word. We get in that quiet place where we pray, put worship music on, and we focus our eyes and attention, and we listen for his voice. It means we steward the gifts he has given us in our time, talents, and treasure. It means we fast. It means we walk in community with one another. You can't just show up at mile 11 and expect to have the endurance if you're not doing those things on a daily basis. There's a training that has to happen, and we need to be consistent in that. The second thing is we need to run with the group. Now, my wife has run a couple marathons. She ran one in Houston and one here in Pittsburgh. And I remember when she was training for her first one, especially, she joined a running club. And they were going to run the marathon together. Today, you saw it. If you were watching the race or part of it, you saw a lot of them had T-shirts. And you knew they were all together in a group. Why do they do that? Why do they run in a group? 
to encourage one another. How many understand it's a lot easier when you hit mile 11, you hit mile 12, and you have your brother or your sister beside you, someone who's for you going, come on, don't quit on me. Don't quit on me. Come on, we're behind the pace, but we can do it. Come on, stop, catch your breath, let's go. You know what I'm saying? I was talking to one of the runners last night who goes to our church, and he was talking about the running community and how at times runners will slow down and sacrifice their own time to make sure someone else succeeds. Think about that in the terms of a faith community. You cannot walk this life of faith alone. We were meant to run the race of endurance of faith together. Doing the same thing that the marathon runners do. When you see a brother or sister, they hit that mile 11 or 12 mark. They physically get a bad report from the doctors. There is a a divorce that happens in their home. Or the relationship with their kids is gone. Or they lose a job. Or finances are hard. Whatever it may be, you say, come on, I got you. I'm walking with you. You're not alone in this. I'm praying for you. You can make it. Just get up on your feet. If I could, just talk to those who are watching online. I don't apologize, and I'm grateful for the technology that allows you to tune in and watch. And I know there's for many reasons people can't be here, and this is a tool for them. But some who are watching online, you think you can do it alone. This is good enough. You can't run, or let me tell you this, it's a lot harder to run a race by yourself. And that's the importance of being here together. You're not alone. You run in a group. The last one is you need to fill your life with his spirit. There are a couple watering stations that are near here. And you know what I'm talking about. When they run the race, you can't run 26.2 miles without having any fluid fill your body. You dehydrate. You need that energy. Many of them carry it with them. The same is true in spiritually in our life journey if you Remember the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She had a lot of issues herself and Jesus identifies it. And they're meeting and having a conversation at the well. And Jesus asks her to, for a drink of water. And she thinks he's talking about a literal drink of water. And she's kind of surprised. And Jesus says this to her. He says, anyone who drinks this water, speaking of the water, the physical water that's in the well, will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. I become a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now Jesus is talking about giving eternal life, security in heaven. But there is also a daily filling that we need from the Holy Spirit. This fresh, bubbling well of comfort and energy and strength. And assurance that when we hit the hard parts of the race, it's the Holy Spirit who helps us endure that. It's a spiritual watering station, if you will, as we run the marathon. That's what it means, filling your life with the Spirit of God. As I close, there's a great illustration that I want to tell you about. It's a story of a man named John Stephen Aquari. And... Rather than tell you the story myself, I want to show it to you in the form of a video. So if you would, watch the screen. John Stephen Aquari represented his country, Tanzania, competing in the marathon event in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico. In the early parts of the race, Aquari cramped up due to the high altitude of the city. 
At the 12-mile point of the 26.2-mile race, he collided with another runner and fell, badly cutting and dislocating his knee. He also hurt his shoulder when he hit the ground. However, despite the injuries, he got up and pressed on, finishing the race as the last person of the 57 competitors who finished. Aquari finished in three hours, 25 minutes, and 27 seconds, well over an hour behind the winner. By the time he neared the finish line, the sun had already set and most spectators had left the arena. But out of the darkness he came. Aquari entered at the far end of the stadium, his leg bloody and bandaged. He was in obvious pain as he hobbled every step. The winner of the marathon had been declared over an hour earlier but the lone runner pressed on. He completed his final lap to a standing ovation from the few thousand spectators who had waited for his appearance. A television crew was set out from the medal ceremony when word was received there was one more runner about to finish the race. When interviewed and asked why he continued running despite his injuries and being out of contention, he simply said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. When God the Father sent his son, Jesus, to earth to pay for our sin and to make a way that we could have eternal salvation, with God in heaven, he didn't send Jesus for us to start the race. He sent him so that we would be finishers. Jesus is looking for finishers today. Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray for us as we leave and to remind you that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. No one remembers Chuck Templeton. No one remembers Bron Clifford Crawford. Everyone remembers Billy Graham. Today, would you bow your head with me? I want this to be a private moment. There are some, no doubt, here within the sound of my voice, you feel disqualified from the race for whatever reason. You feel Maybe like John Stephen Aquari, where <laughs> you've dislocated your knee, you can barely move, you can barely walk. There are others of you that you're fighting that hill in Oakland, mile 11, mile 12, whatever it is. You're gasping for breath. You're fighting the mentally battle. It's like, I just, I just want to quit. I can't do it anymore. I believe today the Holy Spirit is making this room a water station, a spiritual water station. He wants to fill your heart. If that's you, would you just simply lift your hand? Say, God, I need you to fill me. I'm stopping at a water station today, and I need your spirit to fill me so I can keep running. Spirit of God, you see every hand that is raised. Lord, I ask that rivers of living water would flood over them today. Lord, just like 2,000 years ago, you spoke to that Samaritan woman and you said, if you only had a taste of 
me. I would be bubbling, refreshing water. I ask that you would do that in their marriage. I ask that you would do that on their job. I pray over that in their relationships, over their children, over their finances. I pray it over their health. I pray it over their mind and their thoughts, over loneliness. God, would you fill them today with your spirit. Give them the energy to get up and keep running. To put one foot in front of the other. And not worry about their time or where they're at in contention. But they would be strong finishers. Lord, do that in us today. In the name of the living God, Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for today. May we be a people that are a great example to our city, a great example to the world, that we're strong finishers and we run the race. Amen. Encourage one another in the Lord. We'll see you next weekend.